the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening on this week's programme. There's a, a wider story to be told about uh, how the song served a purpose in the singers' lives. This was the wealth that they carried with them when they had nothing else other than the clothes on their backs. Preserving Shanno songs in 19th century Pennsylvania, we'll hear about the life and work of a little-known archivist, Reverend Daniel J. Murphy. Also, three years after 65, when the parts of the bill came into full force, Irish immigration pretty much fell over a cliff. How America's door was closed to the Irish. Ray O'Hanlon on his book, which tells the story of Irish immigration to the USA. Plus, four German bombs fell in the north inner city area of Dublin. But the greatest impact was in the North Strand area, where 28 people were killed. The North Strand bombing, how Dublin was stunned by the German Luftwaffe's bombing of the North Strand in May of 1941. A beautiful rendition of the song on Aun War, performed by the Shanno singer Salogni Canavoin. Traditional Shanno songs in the Irish language are an important part of Irish social and cultural history. In centuries gone by, the collectors who transcribed and preserved Irish music, like Shanno songs, recognised this and worked to preserve this vital part of our heritage. We're going to look today at one particular collection, the Reverend Daniel J. Murphy Archive, which contains around 1,200 of these songs. The collection is named for Daniel Murphy from Sligo, who was an emigrant to the United States. Along with another emigrant, J.J. Lyons from Galway, he spent decades from the 1880s to the 1930s transcribing folklore and songs from his fellow countrymen and women all around Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. To talk about it, I'm joined now by Dr. Deirdre Conila, who this week presented her research in a keynote lecture to the Irish Embassy in the USA. Deirdre, you're very welcome to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Give us a sense, first of all, of the context that uh, the Reverend Dan Murphy was working in, because it seems a little bit strange, but there were, in fact, there was a huge amount of Irish speakers in the 1890s in America, and a good portion of those were in Pennsylvania. That's right, yes. The estimate is that at the time, in 1890 or so, that there were 400,000 Irish speakers in America and that 40,000 of those were in Pennsylvania, uh, many of them in Philadelphia itself, but also, of course, up in the anthracite region of northeastern Pennsylvania. And it's in those two places that uh, Father Murphy was working. He had an uncle who was a priest in the anthracite region for 30 years, from about the mid-1860s right up to his death in 1897. His name was Father Thomas Marin. And so it would appear that 
Father Marin had encouraged Dan, perhaps even paid for his education and training in the seminary. And Dan emigrated from Sligo to Philadelphia and trained as a priest there. Now, we'll talk a lot about Dan Murphy, but uh, J.J. Lyons from Glenamady in, in County Galway, I don't think we know quite as much about him, do we? No, not quite. He's uh, rather enigmatic for the moment. Um, of course, we're reliant on things like passenger lists and census records, etc., to track down some of these individuals unless they leave traces themselves. And JJ left uh, manuscripts he was collecting before Dan and then t- they sort of joined forces then when they met. But JJ would have been in Stonetown National School in Glenamady and it would appear that his teacher there would have been instructing them in Irish uh, literacy. So uh, he was literate in both Irish and English by the time he got to the States. And that would have been unusual, really. And we have, I guess, maybe Archbishop McHale in tune to uh, thank perhaps for the schools throughout his diocese being able to deviate a bit and enable people from Galway and Mayo to acquire literacy in their native language. And um, Father Dan Murphy was working in one of the poorer parts of Philadelphia. There seems to be a suggestion that he may have been a bad boy at one stage, that he might have been (laughs) a little bit recalcitrant. Yes, uh, the family wondered if perhaps he had blotted his copybook was the phrase that was used because he did have a curacy, it would appear, all through the 1890s in downtown Philadelphia and had Irish-speaking parishioners there from whom he was collecting songs. But then around 1902 or so, he just goes off grid. And apart from these letters, etc., where we see uh, the postmarks on the various addresses of where he was living that tell us he was living in the poorer parts of Philadelphia, he doesn't appear to have had a parish either all through that time. So a bit of mystery there for the moment. Uh, But he was active nonetheless right up until his death in 1935 and towards the end of his life, rather than travelling around collecting songs from people, he turned his attention to the materials held in libraries locally uh, in Villanova, for instance, and Irish language manuscripts that had been brought over by immigrants uh, through the years, sometimes producing copies of them to ship to fellow scholars uh, who could then uh, study them. Now, it's an amazing archive, 1,200 songs. I mean, it's up there with with Bunting, with Petrie, probably comparable with Chief O'Neill in Chicago, about 1,800 traditional tunes there. But it's been under the radar, really. How did you find out about it? How did you discover it? So the reason he was under the radar compared with the likes of Petrie and Bunting and Chief O'Neill that you've mentioned, they all published. And Father Murphy really couldn't have hoped to be able to fund a publication in Irish any major publication, there wouldn't have been a market necessarily for it. They relied instead on newspapers and journals as their avenue to dissemination. And so he himself, toward the end of his life, recognised this fact. And uh, in one of the letters, he referred to himself as Sagarth Gun Umro, a priest of little repute. And it was actually a tribute to a book that had been published at the time called Philly Gun Umro, relating to the Donegal poets, the Ranafirste poets, written by uh, Joseph Magriana, whose ancestor was living in Audenried as a parishioner of Father Marin, the uncle. And so we're connecting the different generations that were emigrating back to the, well, the Irish-speaking communities indeed. And, and now, of course, places like Sligo, where they don't have so much Irish now, but they had a Gaeltacht up until the 1950s. And so regardless of what the language capacities are today, 
it's still it's a shared inheritance and the value now for us is to connect all of these communities vast majority of them stretching all along the western seaboard from Donegal down to Kerry and connect them with their history on both sides of the Atlantic. All of these projects have an interesting starting point your starting point was 18 verses of a song you came across on the Aran Islands. That's right. I was researching two projects. One was a book of songs composed in the Aran Islands, and I was always on the lookout for more of them. And uh, I was also researching music collectors and the practice of music collecting. And so those questions and the hunt for those uh, were in the back of my mind when I encountered in the parochial house in Kilronan a transcription of a song and it had been written out from a newspaper. But the original transcription, when somebody sat down with the singer, had been produced by Father Murphy in Philadelphia from a parishioner living four blocks away, Thomas O'Clocherta from Letzirkala in Connemara. And there were 18 verses of a song about proselytisation uh, during the famine composed by Seamus O'Crochud in Kilivri, my own uh, village in Aran. So I wondered, I thought, who's this singer who could carry all those verses across the ocean and continue to maintain them for 40 years in America? And then who's this other guy, this priest who's literate in Irish enough to transcribe what's quite a complicated song? You know, it's it's not light reading in any way. And then for two years, I guess, anytime I met people who might have been experts in the coal mining history in, in America, or Pennsylvania, or libraries and archivists, etc. I asked everybody, do you ever hear of Donal O'Morrochu? And I never thought to ask about Dan Murphy, because the name was far too common. And I thought he was so Gaelach. I didn't expect maybe the, the English name to have been uh, attached to it. But long story short, I'd moved to Galway to begin working on the Aaron Songs project. And the archivist there caught wind of my interest in this figure and said we have those Reverend Murphy papers they had arrived in Galway in 1936 but accession histories wouldn't have been then what they are today and uh, it just was forgotten about because the one person who knew and understood it uh, Thomas Somale died Uh, he died 18 months later so it just uh, faded from memory and and while there were uh, people uh, consulting it from time to time and aware of it it's a bit like the blind man and the elephant. They they didn't quite know all of what they were looking at. Whereas I had the story and I was searching for the materials and it just goes to show when you give people time to research, uh, that's when discoveries can, can be made. And that was a very exciting day in the uh, archive, opening up the box and uh, I got a land, as the expression goes. It was breathtaking, literally, and I just couldn't believe the scale of it. So you're right, it is like Chief O'Neill's story. They're contemporary, actually. They started around 1884. Chief O'Neill stopped then for personal reasons. He had a lot of tragedy in his life. But uh, Murphy kept going, as I say, right up to his death. And then he and his uh, collaborators in Philadelphia, it's in the wake of the Wall Street crash. It's the Great Depression in the 30s. What are they going to do with these manuscripts? What's their fate? Where are they going to end up? And I suppose the hope was that in Ireland, in Galway, where there were policies around Irish language uh, in the university there, that they felt that was going to be a good home for it. Now, you mentioned uh, Tomás O'Molia. He was an Irish scholar, professor who worked at University College Galway, as it was uh, called in, in his time. He made wax cylinder recordings of Shando songs while he was there. And I'm going to play part 
of a recording you've highlighted for us from 1930. Tell us a little bit about this recording. Yes, so Thomas O'Mahler was collecting songs from 1904 onwards at the latest. And then when the technology became available, he moved from manuscript to ediphone recording. And he was using this machine in the university on on the campus in Galway and and, uh, possibly uh, in fieldwork as well, because he documented the dialects of Irish that were spoken throughout Connacht and in County Clare. So every county west of the Shannon. And in the late 20s and 1930 or so, there was a German linguist called Wilhelm Dögen who asked Thomas to help him with his big linguistic project. And Thomas was the one to organise and conduct the recordings that were made on the campus in Galway in September 1930. So the woman you're going to hear is Breeds Niwale. She was uh, Mrs. Ginnelly and she was from Rustaik outside Westport in County Mayo. And she sings a song associated with uh, County Mayo called Onau Niwole. And the Reverend Murphy collection has the same song, but versions from uh, more counties uh, because they're from Galway, Mayo and Sligo as well. So fantastic to be able to look at the different versions across time and space. Now, this was recorded in 1930, so listeners can expect some hiss. But let's hear an excerpt. Uh, this is Brigny Walia from County Mayo and her rendition of On Owen Moor. <laughs> In English, the lyrics of that song, Deirdre, go Farewell, Owen Moore River, Alas that I am not beside you tonight. Do do many of these Shando songs explore themes of emigration and, and missing home, particularly the ones that the likes of Murphy would have collected in America? Yes, we'd certainly expect to find uh, songs of home and of uh, migration in the collection. But in truth, there are songs about everything under the sun in the collection. It did who grugged as we say, and hopefully we might find songs that were uh, perhaps more contemporary, maybe even composed in America as well, describing the experiences there. There is one song that was collected from a young man from Clare Galway called Duvu Nabrothi, the blackening of the potatoes. And while you'd imagine that's about the famine, really it's a song about leaving home just during the famine. So it can vary hugely in terms of the descriptive nature of uh, the lyrics, but there's a a wider story to be told about uh, how the song served a purpose in the singers' lives and how it gave them a sense of identity and just even in themselves personally and that this was the wealth that they carried with them when they had nothing else other than the clothes on their backs. Now you're talking about 1200 uh, in the Murphy archive. I'm sure there's a few songs in there about the Molly Maguires uh, talking about Pennsylvania anthracite. Um, Now I imagine also that depending on where the singer is from there would be differences in the dialect of the Irish language that's used. Can you use the material in the Murphy collection to trace what region each song came from or or a version of of a song or are there multiple versions essentially of the same song in different dialects in the collection? Uh, Yes is the answer and uh, sometimes even up to 20 versions depending on how common the song was. 
for instance, in Shan the Nidotsa, short, playful song, there, there are up to 20 of that one. And around the dialect question, it's quite interesting because Irish wasn't standardised at the time. And so for spelling, there, there would be disputes over how to spell words to faithfully represent how someone had enunciated the lyrics. Father Murphy and uh, J.J. Lyons had discussions about this and they would criticise other collectors as well who weren't quite up to their standards. And the different dialects, while you can learn a lot from how maybe the songs are written and the words are spelled, but in fact, Murphy and Lyons noted the identity of the singers quite clearly and in detail. So, for instance, the women's maiden names are given as well as their married names. The native parishes, sometimes the native townlands in Donegal, for instance, are given because there might be several Bridget O'Donnells in the locality. And just as we do today to pinpoint somebody and, and say, Kayleshu and name where they're coming from, uh, that level of detail is provided for. And that's what makes the collection particularly valuable because you mentioned the Molly Maguires there to date when trying to figure out who were some of the Irish people that became embroiled in that whole saga, all you were getting were maybe uh, lists of surnames and then guessing at their localities and origins in Donegal. But this collection, which dates from the 1880s onwards, except these are people who had been born uh, before and during the famine, who were witnesses to those times, we can tell you who they are, where they're from, their native uh, townlands and everything. So it's the detail. And that's the uh, key lesson for historians everywhere is that, and it's something Guy Biner would have written about in uh, Remembering the Year of the French, is the value of the folkloric material. Once you understand its function in society and the relationship with memory and how it's being marshaled, it is possible to glean valuable uh, information that, that's reliable as well. It can be tested and that's uh, one of the selling points, I guess, for this particular collection. It's not a value just to song and music scholars. It's a value to anybody, whether it's uh, labour history or genealogy. The list is endless. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned the collection. Apparently, it still hasn't been properly catalogued. Obviously, it didn't help that uh, Thomas Amalia was dead within 18 months of the collection arriving in, in Galway. But what finally do you hope to see happen to this Wonderful collection. Well, to date, what has happened is, I guess I was able to contextualise it in uh, December of 2012. And then the next step thereafter was the collection has been listed. The uh, list itself, it's like a phone book of song because it's just song after song after song. And as I say, that's not the full catalogue because the manuscripts are quite brittle and uh, I'm loath to handle them to be leaving sort of bits of paper on the, on the desk as, as you lift them up. But uh, it makes more sense to digitise them promptly as a preservation measure and also then to generate access uh, to them and then, you know, to for cataloguing as well to take place. So really it's because of the, the nature of the materials is places certain demands on how we would proceed with uh, developing it. But ideally the materials would be scanned to a high quality and then the research to connect them can begin and that needs to happen on both sides of the Atlantic. There's lots of knowledge to be uh, collected around the biographies of all those 450 odd singers, more women than men, actually, which uh, reflects maybe how the women might have been 
forgotten about by some collectors. Maybe you've a lot of male collectors coming along, but uh, of course a priest would have a certain license maybe to uh, be in the presence of uh, either sex and it mightn't matter so much. Also the authority of a priest, you couldn't refuse him maybe. So we're hoping to start mapping who those people are and uh, making the connections. To date, I have one family that I've, I've tracked down from Paula Thomish in Eris in County Mayo, who emigrated via the Chuke Emigration Scheme out of Black Sod uh, over to Centralia in Pennsylvania. But then the family following work ended up in Philadelphia and that's where they met Father Dan. And I was able to do that because of the uh, Black Sod Bay Emigration Sailings database that was generated and put online by the wonderful Onad Yervala in Onachlim uh, in Mayo. So that's a groundswell in that that was local people that uh, did that work of history, that project themselves, and just a, an enabler then for those of us maybe working sometimes in university sectors, sometimes outside of them. And of course, digitization of this collection would make it available to everybody just as the, the Black Sod Bay project is as well. My guest is Dr. Deirdre Nicanila. Deirdre, many thanks indeed for joining us to talk about this fascinating archive collection on the History Show. Welcome back. If you believe in a pathway to citizenship, pass it. There's over 11 million undocumented folks, the vast majority of here, overstaying visas. Pass it. We can actually, if you actually want to solve a problem, I've sent a bill to take a close look at it. President Joe Biden there in his address to Congress earlier this week, citing the 11 million undocumented people in the United States and encouraging legislators to take action. Among those undocumented immigrants, obviously, are many Irish people. Estimates vary, but thousands or even tens of thousands of undocumented Irish-born people live in the USA, unable to leave out of fear of being barred re-entry. The logistics of emigrating and pursuing the fabled American dream has changed a lot in the past 60 years or so due to various legislative reforms in the US Congress. This story is told in a new book, Unintended Consequences, the story of Irish immigration to the US and how America's door was closed to the Irish. The author is Ray O'Hanlon, editor of the New York City-published Irish Echo newspaper. Ray, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Now, in the book, you trace the history of the Irish in the United States from the 1580s, and I have to say I was not aware that we went back quite that far, up to the present day with with stories of how Irish-born people played a role in uh, American history. Now, in addition to the overall story that you're trying to tell, these are stories that you include to illustrate why the overarching narrative is worth telling. 
Absolutely. You know, the story, there's two components to it, I suppose. There's the narrative of the legislative narrative, the battles for visas in more recent decades. But to underpin that, to sort of say, you know, why is it such a big deal to the Irish being excluded from the United States? You have to sort of look at the overall story of the Irish in America, which does go back centuries, goes back to the 1580s, the first recorded Irishman in North American soil uh, before it even was the United States, of course, was a man named Edward Nugent, who had a rather unfortunate encounter with a a Native American chief and actually supposedly beheaded that uh, Native American chief. Um, So that first encounter wasn't very positive. But we're talking of a story that does indeed go back centuries and really takes off in the 18th century when so many Irish fought for American independence under the banner of George Washington. The 19th century, we know the mass migration across the Atlantic continuing into the 20th century. Irish America is a big deal. It's a big entity. It's the second largest ethnic group in the United States after the Germans. And for the door to be closed after 1965 was no small thing. It was met with anger, frustration, confusion, and the Irish began to rally to sort of fight back. So the story kind of sets that. Why was it such a big deal, 1965? Why was it such an alarming thing to the Irish at the time? So the book seeks to sort of wrap that bigger story around the narrative of the last few decades and the various organisations that have fought for visas. I'm assuming by describing Edward Nugent as the first Irishman to set foot on American soil that you're discounting St. Brendan, but we won't get into (laughs) that particular particular story. One person, one interesting emigrant as well. I mean, if Nugent was the first, Annie Moore was a significant Irish emigrant. Tell me why that's the case. You know, we see it in Joe Biden. You mentioned Joe Biden. I've always said over the years, I mean, I'm in the news business, but I've always set aside something for what I call the power of sentiment. Never underestimate the power of sentiment. I've come across sentiment time and time again, dealing with Irish Americans, and I've sort of gotten used to it. But the feelings that they have for Ireland are quite extraordinary. They, They range high above just, okay, family connections or DNA and stuff like that. It It's far more than that. And Annie Moore is a kind of a symbolic figure. She was a young girl. And like so many Irish immigrants in the 19th century, she was a young woman. Countless young Irish women made that perilous journey across the Atlantic, often on their own. Annie had her little brother with her. She becomes this kind of symbolic figure, the first recorded immigrant at Ellis Island. And to this day, and the chapter describes the sort of rediscovery of Annie and her life, she kind of got lost in the American sort of mist for many years. There were various Annie Moores discovered, one uh, in the Midwest, one in Texas, and they finally, through genealogical research, discovered her on the Lower East Side. She'd married a German immigrant. Uh, She had a tough life, and she died young, and she was buried in Calvary Cemetery in Queens, the largest cemetery in the United States with over three million residents, and there's Annie in the middle of it. And the chapter kind of describes that rediscovery of Annie and her story, the day that her headstone was rededicated, Ronan Tyne and the tenor nearly blew headstones away, singing Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears. It, it was an absolutely incredible moment that day. But that chapter is used to kind of underpin and emphasize the emotional, sentimental connection, which actually ends up fueling a lot of the sort of activity in Irish America undertaken on behalf of Ireland. Now, the sense of 
emigration to the USA in the 19th century is you just, you rock up, you say, here I am, and you walk in. That begins to change towards the end of the century, but not necessarily for the Irish, more for Chinese, Japanese, Chinese in particular on the West Coast. And of course, the Irish play a part in bringing that about. So is there any restrictive legislation in an Irish context, emigration legislation in the 19th century? Uh, not really. It really was an open door. I always remember the uh, the movie Gangs of New York. You, you remember the scene mm. where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of wondering, why aren't we running this town yet? He says, there are 15,000 of us coming off the boats every week. And that wasn't an exaggeration during the 1840s, 50s and 60s. In 1860, one in five people in New York City was born in Ireland. Born now, not just first or second generation. So, no, it really was an open door. It was, a, it was a, an empty continent in need of people, and the Irish were able to pretty much walk ashore. In, in the context of that movie, you see young men been given muskets and, and Union uniforms and marched off to war. But the labour was needed. The people were needed to settle the land, to work in industry, and they were also needed by big city political machines for their votes. So it really was an open door, and the Chinese have the dubious distinction of being the only ones who actually had legislation passed to exclude them. That has never happened with the Irish. But it, the effect of the 65 Act wasn't intended, but rather unintended, but the effect has been pretty much the same. But I think that wasn't there a quota system of some kind introduced in the 1920s, for example, uh, even before the 65 legislation. Did that have any impact on Irish immigration? No, because it was a quota system that largely favoured Europeans, including the Irish. It was on top of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was again designed to sort of filter, if you will, the different immigrant groups uh, with an emphasis on North and West Europe. So what came about in the 1920s was not unfavourable to the Irish at all. But it was a discriminator. You know, you had a Congress beginning to discriminate between particular um, racial and ethnic groups. It wasn't a pretty sight. But for the Irish, it wasn't an immediate impediment and, and they would continue to come during the 1920s, the 1930s, and then there was a pause for World War II, and then a significant number would again come in the 1950s. You know, the Irish faced a lot of discrimination in America. Mm. We'll not forget that once they arrived, but there was no great bar to their actual arrival. Now, uh, you include, as I said at the, in my introduction, a number of stories which illustrate the importance of the Irish-American connection. Let's talk about one of those stories, an individual um, to whom you essentially devote a chapter, a man, a young man, or a young man at the time called Michael McGrath. And interestingly, this is just prior to the curtain coming down. Tell me about Michael McGrath and what his connection was with the USA. Well, Michael was a member of the um, Curragh Command Army Rifle Drill Team. Uh, when President Kennedy visited Ireland in 1963, the Curragh Command Rifle Drill Team performed their drill forum. I believe it was at the Garden of Remembrance. And they had this drill called the Queen Anne Drill, which they did with old Lee Enfield rifles. President Kennedy was absolutely amazed by this. He thought it was the most magnificent rifle drill he'd ever seen. And apparently when he came back after his visit, uh, he said this to Jackie Kennedy. So 
That was June 63, and he was assassinated in November. And, and Jackie Kennedy remembered this, and she said in, in organising the funeral, she insisted that the Irish Army cadets come over and stand guard over her dead husband at Arlington National Cemetery. And as Michael McGrath tells the story, you know, they were a bunch of young guys, um, cadets, they're all 19 years of age, they're down in the Curra, they get roused out of bed in the middle of the night, they had just been given new Belgian FN rifles, and they were told to get their old Leanne fields out of the grease packs. They were going to Dublin Airport. They had no clue initially what was going on. They found out as they went along, arrived at Dublin Airport. There was Eamon de Valera, an Aer Lingus plane. They were all piled on board the plane and flew to America, and it gradually was being revealed to them what had happened and what their role was going to be. But what he remembers fearfully, he said, you know, he didn't have a passport. Nobody had a passport. But when they got to Idlewild Airport in New York, which would soon be JFK, uh, the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, was waiting for them at the bottom of the steps coming down from the plane. So there they are, the two lines. If you look at the funeral of JFK, you'll see the two lines of these tall, they were generally tall guys with their white sort of bandoliers and stuff and their jodhpurs, the Irish Army cadets, two lines of them. Michael tells the story. They were there for two hours before the cortege arrived. And I remember asking him at the end, I said, you know, Michael, what do you remember most of that day? And he says to me, the drums. He will never forget the drums getting closer, coming over the key bridge with the cortege. There's an irony, of course, in the whole Kennedy connection, because you're talking about and have been talking about, and the book is really about the 1965 Immigration and the Nationality Act and the unintended consequences involved there. But it was very much a piece of Kennedy legislation, Kennedy brothers legislation, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, President Kennedy, um, in his book, A Nation of Immigrants, sort of outlined his view of what immigration should be. I mean, we had the national quotas favouring European groups, nationalities, and Kennedy took the view that it should be more diverse and open to the world, but not necessarily excluding these European uh, groups either. And when he was assassinated, um, his brother Teddy Kennedy pretty well picked up the, um, the banner on this one, and President Johnson also, and the Congress, and we had the signing of the 65 uh, Immigration and Nationality Act on Liberty Island, New York Harbor. It's the cover of the book, that photograph. And you see Teddy in it and Bobby Kennedy and uh, Jackie is just off frame on the left. But Edward Kennedy and all these other legislators who sort of signed on to this were, were at pains to state that nothing was really going to change. And, and there was a political expediency in this. They didn't want to scare Americans that America was go suddenly about to be turned on its head. But the genuine belief was that even with a more diverse family-based, family reunification-based immigration system, that the face of immigration would not drastically change. And that was a, a, an expressed belief by virtually all legislators in Capitol Hill. Uh, but they were wrong. The world suddenly woke up to this new form of American uh, immigration. And, and I have to say, there was a moral core to the 65 Act. It was very much in the spirit of the time. Um, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, it sort of sort of falls in to place with those. But the world paid attention, and suddenly the door was wider open. So you had Latin America, South America, Africa, Asia, so you're saying, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is our moment, this is our opportunity. It did change American immigration, and it did have a pretty immediate effect of closing down Irish access. Three years after 65, when, when the parts of the bill came into full force, Irish immigration pretty much fell over a cliff. Why was that? I mean, was it to do with the 
family reuniting or repatriation element of the legislation? You know, I think sociologists and historians would sort of look at this closely. I mean, we know that by the 1960s, there were two dynamics in play here. Uh, The Irish government at the time was disinclined. There were offers made to them that we could build in something for the Irish into the legislation. Teddy Kennedy made an offer. But the government of the day, the Sean Lamass government, was of the view that quite understandably so, that Ireland needed its people. If it was going to develop economically, if economic plans on paper were going to actually take effect, Ireland needed its people. So that was the the one thing on that side. And then also the fact that the people who left Ireland, immigrants leaving Ireland at the time, tended to be individuals rather than entire families. So they were individuals, and they weren't going to come and pull very many relatives with them. You wouldn't have that many. Some families, yeah, but not many. Most Irish immigrants were individuals. And what you had with the family reunification, you started to have lines, tailbacks of relatives coming in based on one immigrant arriving. Uh, Let's say a male breadwinner then brings in a wife, then brings in children, then brings in siblings, and you have this tailback. The process takes sometimes years. So you had tailbacks of immigrants coming back from the family reunification and individuals kind of getting elbowed aside by these long lines of people waiting to get in. So it was a combination of what was happening in Ireland and the nature of Irish emigration at the time resulted in the Irish being sort of elbowed aside. Now that wouldn't have had huge repercussions or ramifications in Ireland in the 1960s, in the 19, early 1970s because things were improving yes. in Ireland. But from the mid-70s onwards and certainly by the time you get to the 1980s, it's now beginning to be a huge problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as I remember the 1980s is that, you know, Ireland was changing and and becoming a much more sort of engaged society with other countries. People were traveling more. It was uh, more of a consumer society. I think there were greater expectations among young Irish people in the 1980s in particular. They were being sort of reared now in a sort of consumer society. And when those expectations were foiled by economic recession, which there was, the next thing to do was, well, you know, I can't hang around here. Uh, I do have a cousin in the Bronx, and he's telling me there's plenty of work. You can work, you can make loads of money, and then you can go back with your loads of money and get your kickstart. So what we saw then in the mid-1980s, we saw thousands of Irish make that westward trek flying now across the ocean and landing in an America that was now post another immigration act, the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act signed by President Reagan, which had in it a lot of new restrictions, but also had it a sort of a grandfather clause, an amnesty with a cut-off date, which allowed for ultimately about three million people to get in who were undocumented and illegal because of they were in before the cut-off date. But the vast majority of the Irish in the 80s came after the cut-off date. So they were out on, you know, out in a limb. And that sort of precipitated and began the, the lottery visa campaigns, the engagement of Irish-American politicians and uh, a lobby group, the Irish Immigration Reform Movement, to try and fix this problem of the undocumented Irish in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, Ireland did have its champions in Congress, most notably Brian Donnelly and Bruce Morrison and and their legislation and the visas that uh, they came up with for Irish people. But were they just sticking plasters? Pretty much. And later Irish immigration campaigners would talk about, well, they would continue to talk about the undocumented, those who did not benefit 
from the Donnelly visas, the Morrison visas, the few from the Berman visas, and the early days Schumer diversity visas. You had another factor, of course, in the late 90s. You had a sudden explosive economic growth in Ireland itself. We all remember the Celtic Tiger, which kind of pulled some even visa holders back from the US to Ireland. But in the, in the early, the first decade of this century, you had um, a realization, and particularly after the, the crash, that there were still thousands of undocumented Irish here who had not benefited from those various visa programs and were still living in the shadows here in the United States. And you also started to hear a phrase, future flow, which was looking ahead to sort of return to a point where, you know, you wouldn't have huge numbers of Irish, but you wouldn't be excluded simply for being Irish. And also, you also had an increasing sort of look back to what was perceived to be the cause of this long-burning issue now, and that was a new look at the 65 Act, a new critical look at the 1965 Act, forgetting the 1980s, going way back to what was now viewed as being the source of the problem. So that sort of carries us in the first, through the first two decades of this century. In conclusion, can we put a figure on it? Do we know how many undocumented Irish there are in the USA? I mean, there have been a figure put as high as 250,000, which seems like a ridiculously high figure. The 250,000 was voiced back in the 1980s when the Irish immigration reform movement campaigners were trying to attract political attention to it. How do you attract it? You kind of exaggerate the number. So that journalists are going, oh my God, there's 250,000 Irish people wandering the streets with no, no visas. So it becomes a story. It gets into the New York Times and politicians start to pay attention. But when politicians then start to pay attention, you realise that 250,000 is a huge pill to swallow. It's not going to make it in Congress. When other people start looking at it, what do you mean visas for two? So you start to lower the number. The number then starts come tumbling down again to a more realistic level. But today, I mean, yeah, you hear up to 50,000, you hear as low as 10,000. Personally, I try not to concentrate on numbers anymore. I try to think of individuals. You know, I've been looking in my American life. I try to think of people who have been living in the shadows, have families in a, for decades now, but still have to look over their shoulder. There's still that fear of the knock on the door, of being tripped up, of being discovered in some way. That fear grew exponentially in the four years of the Trump administration. It has eased somewhat now with Joe Biden. But one of the first things Biden does is come in and say, we don't use the term illegal aliens anymore. I mean, psychologically, that's a, that's a gift. So i rather not think so much in numbers and try and think in terms of individuals and try and see how we can get to a point where they are allowed to live out the rest of their lives in America legally and without that daily fear. There is a bill in there are two bills now, one in the Senate, one in the House, which would do that. But of course, Congress being Congress, it can barely agree on what day of the week it is. Uh, it's going to be a hell of a tough fight. Well, it's a fight that you've been covering as a journalist for uh, three or four decades now, and we've talked about it on many occasions in the past on news and current affairs programs. So it's interesting to be talking about it on the History Show, and hopefully it will become history at some point in the future. But I'm delighted that you've managed to get it all together in, in book form and that you include some really, really fascinating stories as well. The book is called Unintended Consequences. It's published by Marion Press. The author is my guest, Ray O'Hanlon. Ray, many thanks indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles. After the break, the North Strand bombing, which occurred 80 years ago this month. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. 
Despite officially declaring its neutrality at the start of World War II, Ireland suffered several bombing raids during the conflict. The worst of these occurred 80 years ago in North Dublin City. Our reporter, Mark McManaman, found out more. Early in the morning of the 2nd of January 1941, the first bombing of Dublin, during the emergency known uh, on the continent as World War II, occurred when German bombs were dropped in the suburb of Terenure in South Dublin. This is historian Aaron Amwaney. This was followed by further bombings the following morning on the 3rd of January 1941, when a further series of bombs were dropped in Denor Terrace on the South Circular Road. A number of people were injured in these attacks, but no one was killed in these bombings, luckily. However, later on in that year, on the 31st of May 1941, four German bombs fell in the North Inner City area of Dublin. On May 31st, 1941, Adolf Hitler's dreaded Luftwaffe bombed Dublin in a devastating raid, which left 28 people dead and scores injured. In the midst of the chaos that ensued following the bombing, one entire family from Edenderry, County Offaly, perished. This is historian and author Kieran Riley, who himself is a native of Edenderry. On that night, four bombs were dropped in Dublin, in Ballybock, Summerhill, and on Phoenix Park. There was some minor damage done to Oris and Uchtaran. But the fourth bomb fell, a 500-pound bomb fell on the North Strand area, and that caused the greatest devastation. 28 people were killed, 90 people injured, and 300 houses damaged. Of the 28 people killed, one quarter were from one family alone, the Brown family of Edenderry. And the night of the bombing in the Brown household was Mary Brown, age 65. She was Harry Brown's mother. There was Mary, age 32, his wife. Maureen, age 7. Anne, age 5. Edward, three and a half, And little Angela, age 2. They were killed instantly. Harry was a member of the local defence force in the Store Street Company. And he had been out on patrol on that evening when the first bombs were dropped in the Summerhill area. And he returned to his house shortly after 2am in the morning and he was found partially clothed and close to uh, the front door. The assumption was that he had just returned home when the bomb was actually dropped on the house. The Germans respect nothing. Latest evidence of this is their bombing of neutral error. Nazi planes dropped their loads of death over a wide area of Dublin, killing and injuring more than a hundred people. The era government has protested to Berlin against the wanton attack on their professed neutrality, but unfortunately protests will not bring back the dead or heal the wounds of the injured. Maybe this is the price era has to pay for sitting on the fence. In an effort to show solidarity with the country, De Valera attended some of the Dublin funerals. De Valera actually made representations to the German government and attended a mass funeral which occurred on the 5th of June. 1941 for 12 of the victims. De Valera also made a speech in Doyle Aaron where he expressed sympathy on behalf of the government and the nation to the great number of citizens who, and I quote, were so cruelly bereaved by the recent bombing. The Brown family funerals are remembered as a particularly tragic event in Edenderry, according to Kieran. On the Tuesday following the bombing, the funeral of the Brown family took place in Edenderry 
And I think one of the things which is most vividly remembered is the arrival of the funeral cortege in the town. The O'Brien family, who owned a store in Edenderry, had sent a lorry to Dublin to collect the coffins, the seven coffins of the members of the Brown family. And that was a sight which many people recalled for many years after, and indeed still do today in Edenderry, uh, having witnessed it or heard about it, is this arrival of, of the lorry as it arrived in Edenderry, carrying the seven, an open back lorry carrying seven coffins. And it was met by thousands of people who lined the streets. There's photographs of the funeral which survive and you know, people were overcome in particular when they saw the little coffins, the coffins of Maureen and Edward and Angela and Anne. And that's what struck people most and, and what people spoke about in the days, months and, and years afterwards. According to Aaron, West Germany eventually paid compensation to the Irish state for the bombing raid. They accepted responsibility for the raid and by 1958 they paid compensation worth then £327,000 which they used uh, martial aid money to pay for. Looking to the future, Kieran believes it is important that the human cost of the bombings can be suitably commemorated in the future. The example of the Brown family and, and what happened to them, you know, there is the chance now to record stories and perhaps if we wait for the 100th anniversary of the Second World War, that memories of what happened and the impact that the North Strand bombing had will be lost. I know there has been great work done by Dublin City Archives and others to record memories of people who lived in around the North Strand, but there are lots more stories to record and to keep for future generations. Mark McMenamin was reporting there on the North Strand bombing in May of 1941. That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>